<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Hello, good friends. Welcome to the Bill Press Pod and this week's Reporters Roundtable. Coming to you a day earlier this week because so many of us, including me, are heading out of town for the holidays. As always, Congress waits till the last minute to get things done. This year, no exception. After months of negotiating, they finally did pass and President Biden did sign historic legislation recognizing same-sex marriage. Now they're fighting an uphill battle to pass an omnibus spending bill before leaving for the holidays, uh, just to keep the government running for another few weeks. Meanwhile, with the midterms behind us, everybody's already talking about 2024, where Donald Trump got a bit of bad news this week, according to the latest poll, trailing Ron DeSantis in a Republican primary, 52 to 38. Kevin McCarthy's moment of truth comes a lot earlier in early January when House Republicans meet to elect the next speaker. McCarthy needs 218 votes, but he's not there yet and may never get there. All of that and a whole lot more for today's Blue Ribbon panel of Washington political reporters. Leah Askaranam, now senior editor at Grid News. Leah, welcome back. Thanks, Bill. Niall Stanage joining us again, White House columnist for The Hill and political analyst for News Nation AM. Hello, Niall. Hey, Bill. And Jeff Dufour, editor-in-chief of the National Journal. Welcome back, Jeff. Hi, Bill. Thanks. Here we go. All right. There is a Lady Gaga resounding all over the South Lawn of the White House yesterday. 5,300 people there, actually the day before, when President Biden did sign into law the legislation recognizing same-sex marriage. Leah, this is something we would never think possible, like not even a year ago, right? I mean, thinking about this even, I mean, just the last 20 years, the evolution of this issue, 30 years, it's it's wild that this is now a celebration on the White House lawn. I will say, just to put things in a little bit more context, it ensures that states recognize other states that have performed same-sex marriages. But right. if the Supreme Court decision uh, gets overturned that made uh, same-sex marriage legal, federally, nationwide, um, it doesn't actually force individual states to perform same-sex marriages. So it's a major issue. It's a major moment. It's a major symbolic moment. Um, but this future of same-sex marriage in this country, especially if we're thinking about the next Congress, what happens after 2024, um, it's not perfectly enshrined, and um, it's still something to keep an eye on. And Jeff, this would not have happened, right, without the Supreme Court decision. 
or the, the potentiality of the Supreme Court, particularly after Thomas, Clarence Thomas's warning after the Dobbs decision? No, not at all. And I don't think there was... I think it was a bit far-fetched to say that the, that the Supreme Court was going to step in in the same way uh, that they did with Dobbs. But at the same time, uh, I think Dobbs uh, spooked enough people to, uh, to make this necessary. Um, piggybacking on what, on what Leah said, Tim Miller, I, I thought, had the best take on this in, in the bulwark. He called it, quote-unquote, Biden's big effing gay bacchanalia. <laughs> and he, but he bookended the the way that Clinton originally signed the Defense of Marriage Act in the 90s, essentially in in the dead of night with no fanfare at all, Whoa. to this event this week, which had more fanfare than than it, it was like the Easter egg roll on, yeah. the, on the White House lawn. Um, and, and I do think the way that I'm going to be a little bit... Uh, uh, I am constitutionally predisposed toward cynicism, as most journalists are, <laughs> but I'll be a little optimistic. I think that the way Congress put this together, especially in the Senate, mm-hmm. um, was something of a model of center out consensus governance. Uh, you know, they got 11 Republicans on board, a couple of them quite conservative, Cynthia Lummis, uh, Todd Young, and and sort of carved out the exceptions they were looking for and and got the people on board in the way that they could, maybe, maybe this could be a model for, for more consensus governance like this in the next Congress when we have a, a, a really another really closely divided government. Uh, and Niall, um, I think we also have to mention, right, for Joe Biden, this is a big moment in more ways than one, right? First of all, signing historic legislation, but also it shows how far he himself has changed on this issue. Sure. No, absolutely. I mean, I think as so many Americans have, Liam mentioned the fact that there has been uh, an absolute sea change in this issue. I mean, it's very striking when you contrast the trajectory over same-sex marriage with other uh, divisive social issues. Um, I mean, it has followed much more the trajectory that, say, interracial marriage followed a generation before, rather than, say, something like abortion, which clearly remains a, a divisive issue. The debate over same-sex marriage has, I think, uh, been effectively uh, settled, even though there is still, of course, opposition to it. Um, But yes, to your point, I mean, obviously it is uh, a topic on which the president has moved uh, quite a lot over the years. We see a lot of these long-term changes in American society reflected in his career, given that he was elected to the Senate in the early 1970s. But, you know, of course, it was him who, as vice president, Yep. It came out on, uh, wasn't it Meet the Press? It was a Sunday show. Exactly. exactly. Anyway, right. uh, supporting same-sex marriage before his then boss, <laughs> President Obama, had declared his support for it. So uh, that was a, a striking moment and one that I have heard rightly mentioned um, several times following the signing of this bill. Right. Nobody more surprised <laughs> watching Meet the Press than Barack Obama. <laughs> indeed. indeed. When, when Joe Biden. Well, speaking of... Um, the ability to get things done uh, on another issue, not so fast, perhaps this week, the sad anniversary, 10 years since the massacre at Sandy Hook, 21st graders, six teachers mowed down. Uh, and President Biden marked the moment this week with a new renewed commitment to do something about gun safety. Here he is. I am determined 
to ban assault weapons and high-capacity magazines like those used in Sandy Hook and countless other mass shootings since then. We must do this. But Jeff, uh, this is one issue on which we may, we won't, probably will not see the center out no. work, right? No, um, he, he probably got the best outcome he could have gotten uh, in, in, in this, this past Congress, uh, where after, after the Texas Uvalde shooting, they did get uh, some minor reforms through, and Biden's done what limited things he can do with the with the pen from the Oval Office. Um, but th- there's only so much appetite that that Congress has for for any further action on guns. I, I think we're going to continue to see rhetoric like this from him. Regrettably, we'll probably see more shootings followed by more rhetoric like this. Uh, but I'm I'm highly this this is where I'll revert to my pessimism. Uh, that, that, <laughs> That my, my normal pessimism um, that that Congress can can get in anything else together on guns. Pessimism or reality. Um, I'm not sure which it is. But Leah, I saw on CBS last night there have been 3,500 mass shootings since Sandy Hook. That's think about that. 350 at least a year. Um, what's it going to take? I mean, what. What hasn't it? How has this not already happened? I think is the big question. Yeah. Like there have been countless tragedies. We've seen thousands of children die just from gun violence in general since uh, Sandy Hook, and there doesn't seem to be a a, a kind of bipartisan um, urge to get anything done here. And I think part of it is this. Kind of divide between Democrats and Republicans about what the problem is. And it comes down to, you know, the right to bear arms, the Second Amendment, um, and this kind of weird conversation that we keep having about mental health. And I think that's, you know, it's something that came up over and over again during the midterm campaign and a whole bunch of different um, ways how mental health has all these political impacts. But in the end, it, it seems like the evidence shows that this is not a mental health issue. This is a guns issue. And as long as, uh, you know, half of Congress, especially the, you know, the majority party in the next Congress believes that this is not an issue about guns, then how how does anything get done? Right. Well, certainly nothing will get done uh, with Republicans in control of the House, no matter who the speaker is. Uh Obviously, the number one candidate is Kevin McCarthy, um, but he's not there yet. 218 is the magic number. Niall, you guys at the Hill, you have a running tally every day of how close he is. Hmm. Uh, What's your take? Is he going to make it? Well, I mean, I am not one of our House reporters, and they have greater expertise than I do on it. I would assume Ultimately, he will make it, but I think it could be quite a chaotic process. Uh, I mean, obviously, the Republicans, as we all know, did worse than they expected or not as well as they expected would be perhaps a better way of putting it in the midterm elections. That leaves them on 2-2-2 in the House. And, you know, if everyone votes for a named candidate, uh, Kevin McCarthy needs 218 votes. He, at the moment, has five Republicans who have indicated publicly in some fashion that they will not vote for him. Some 
admittedly slightly more uh, emphatically than others. But those people, uh, I guess, spearheaded by Congressman Andy Biggs, have suggested that there are more people who haven't come into the open yet who share their views. It is very plausible, I think, that we could end up in a situation where there's a a speaker vote on the floor that you know goes goes through several rounds. The um, perhaps McCarthy's strongest card is that it's not clear who the alternative would be. I mean, I, I don't think Congressman Biggs is going to make it, nor do I think that there's going to be some Republican uh, on what passes for the moderate wing elected with Democratic support, because I would assume that would l- then lose you even more support on the right flank of the GOP. So I think it's going to be McCarthy by default. But <laughs> I, I keep thinking... Uh, I, I hope they. I think they should put a little um, uh, fireplace, right, a little stove or something somewhere in the Capitol, like they do at the Vatican. And as they go through successive ballots, you know, you get black smoke and black smoke. Finally, you get the white smoke, and you're a speaker. But Jeff, uh, on on Niall's point, if not McCarthy, who the hell might it be? Yeah, I mean, I've seen. I think it's maybe it's telling that you're still hearing other candidates get floated. Um, Steve Scalise, mm-hmm. Lee Stefanik. And then uh, yesterday I saw Patrick McHenry's name floated that maybe he could get some Democratic support if it comes down to that, in addition to the mo- more moderate wing of the Republican Party. But this is, it's all speculation at this point. Uh, I think one thing we do know is that we could be in for a hell of a lot of chaos on that first day because the clerk presides until there's a speaker. The clerk, <laughs> the clerk calls the shots until there's a speaker, and then the speaker swears in the members. So there's technically no members until there's a speaker, and the, the, the process is entirely out of the control that the, that the majority party would normally have. If the yeah. clerk wants to call uh-huh. another vote, she'll call another vote. Um, and and, and the, the strange thing is that I, I will say McCarthy does have on his side – the reasonable position on one of the key issues, which is to say the Freedom Caucus wants to restore the motion to vacate rule, right, which right. would allow any member to call for a vote of no confidence in the speaker at any point, like we sometimes see in a, in a parliamentary system. But this is just going to invite the same kind of chaos we might see on January 3rd to play on repeat throughout the whole Congress. Uh, so McCarthy may, may indeed have a very good point there that we don't want to invite that. All right. So, Leah, I, I, I know this is the wildest um, speculation that I've heard, that there might be a Republican who could reach over and pick up a few Democrats and win with some Democratic support. Now, I have to say, this happened in California when Willie Brown was running for speaker among the Democrats, and he was in second place, and ever, nobody thought he could win. And Willie Brown went across the aisle and snared a couple of Republicans, and he became speaker of the uh, the California Assembly with some Republican votes. I don't see, am I wrong? I don't see that ever happening with this group of Republicans. No, you're right that it happens on the state level. It happened in Alaska recently. Oh, huh. um, this this does happen on the state level. There, what is it, what's in it for Democrats to help Republicans sort their way out of this mess? Yeah. Um, I think that it's, I mean, reading the current chaos in the Republican Party as an actual 
uh, bid for other members to take the speakership, I think is probably the wrong framing. I don't think anyone thinks Andy Biggs is actually going to be speaker. <laughs> I don't know if Andy Biggs thinks that he's going to be speaker. Um, but what is he doing? He's basically making a case for his wing of the party to have as much power as possible in the next Congress, um, which uh, is already going to have a substantial amount of power given that Kevin McCarthy has repeatedly appeased Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, has defended her. Um, and now we have Andy Biggs basically coming in and, you know, what, wh- how are committee assignments going to be shaped because of his, um, his, his kind of uh, being on the sidelines, making noise, making things more difficult. Um, I think that's the question is, is how much power does the moderate, the moderate wing have when, mm-hmm. you know, the, this particular wing has so much power to make McCarthy's life just very difficult. Well, I must say I'm amused by seeing such chaos on the Republican side because, as Democrats, and I speak as a Democrat, we're used to seeing all that chaos on the Democratic side. <laughs> uh, and yet things have been very smooth on the Democratic side, a smooth transition, and um, lots of honors this week and beyond for the outgoing speaker, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, this week, uh, HBO released uh, the documentary uh, filmed by her daughter, Alexandra Pelosi, Uh, And they unveiled the official portrait of Speaker Pelosi yesterday with a surprise guest, former Speaker John Boehner, with a surprise um, uh, glowing endorsement of Nancy Pelosi. Uh, Of course, with John Boehner, it had to be given in tears. Madam Speaker, I have to say, my girls told me, tell this speaker how much we admire her. Well, Jeff, you never would have heard those words from Kevin McCarthy, I guess, huh? No, but I don't, I'm not sure that John Boehner has stopped crying since he left Congress. (laughs) I I don't think I've, it was the last time I saw a speech of his where he wasn't crying. It's amazing. Um, it was telling what he said about her though, that she was, you know, one of, one of the, the toughest, most capable, speakers in in the history of congress and and i think she probably uh the history books will probably reflect that yes i saw in fact john boehner uh also what he uh, either when he was was or was not crying said that no other speaker of the house in the modern era republican or democrat has wielded the gavel with such authority or with such consistent results and uh zoe lofgren yesterday said Flat out, she's the most effective speaker in the history of the United States. Leah, probably not exaggerating, huh? I mean, that's a Sam, Sam Rayburn. Who else? Most Republicans, candidly, would tell you the same thing. Um, I actually spoke to the former NRCC chairman, um, who's no longer in Congress, a, a few months ago, uh, before the election, and you know, he's he's in charge of he was in charge of keeping the Republican House majority and said on the record, you know, like, that, yes, she's the most effective um, speaker in history. And that's part of the reason why she makes people so angry. <laughs> that's part of the reason why uh, Republicans have made her such a target. Uh, so, no, I think that she's been incredibly effective at 
kind of organizing in a, a, a caucus that's really joined by, you know, not too many common threads. You know, it's it's the kind of opposition to the Republican Party. There are some areas where there's obviously agreement, especially on social issues, but it's a really tough group to keep together. And looking at the next Congress, I mean, Nancy Pelosi, who like we said, it's probably the most effective speaker of all time, managed to kind of barely keep together this group of 223 Democrats. Now, what's Kevin McCarthy going to do when he has an even, I think an even narrower majority, about 220 Republicans? Um, and I think at this point, a much rowdier conference to, uh, to, to manage. So it's, I think that her competence in the position um, is going to be uh, something to keep an eye out for as we're watching Kevin McCarthy try to figure out this next Congress. Right. All right. Well, uh, lots covered so far, and there's still a lot of news out of Washington this week, which we haven't gotten to. Let's take a quick break and pick up all the rest of it, including what's happening with the former president uh, and such not very promising poll results that he received toward the end of the week. Uh, we'll be back with Niles Stanage and Leah Skaranam and Jeff Dufer after just a moment. And today's roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod is brought to you by the Iron Workers of America under the leadership of President Eric Dean. The Iron Workers, the real backbone of the American labor movement. The sky's the limit. That's their motto. And boy, do they mean it. Think of uh, most of the iconic structures built across the United States from the Golden Gate Bridge to the Great Arc in St. Louis to the Freedom Towers in New York. They are all the work of the iron workers. We salute the proud men and women of the Iron Workers Union. Thank them for their great work building America and rebuilding America. And thank them for their support of the Bill Press Pod. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And we're back with today's roundtable here on the Bill Press Pod. Our guest, uh, Niall Stanage, joining us from The Hill, White House columnist for The Hill, Jeff Dufer, editor-in-chief of National Journal, Leah Askaranam, 
now senior editor at Grid News. So this is the holiday season. Every night there are two or three or four or five holiday events. And there was one uh, Nile last Friday, which has gotten a little bit of attention. It was a party held at the home of Matt Schlapp, who is, uh, we know, the head of CPAC, uh, one of the leading Republican activists uh, in the country, whose wife was a senior advisor to President Donald Trump. And Matt Schlapp, welcome to his party, which was filled with Republican political activists, none other than a justice of the Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh. Niall, is this appropriate for a Supreme Court justice? What is the feeling to attend a political, basically, fundraiser? I mean, I think it's certainly questionable. Uh, you know, it's obviously good that Supreme Court justices remain uh, as apparently uh, outside of partisanship as they can. I would wonder whether the same people who are so outraged about this would be equally outraged if, say, Katanji Brown-Jackson went to, uh, I don't know, a party held by someone from Move On or a group like that. I mean, perhaps they would be, and perhaps that's that's fair. But I mean, on one hand, it would be better if Supreme Court justices were clearly impartial, obviously. Uh, on the other hand, some of the outrage about it, I think, can itself be rather partisan or selective. So that's kind of where I feel on what I feel on that one. Jeff, is there any doubt to you what the uh, reaction would be if were Katanji Jackson Brown to show up at a Move On event? Well, fr- from the other side, no, I have no, I have no doubt. Um, I would. Are we talking? Would, we'd be talking impeachment, probably. Sure, sure. Um, Everybody's going to get impeached next year. Mark (laughs) mark my words. Um, I mean, the the optics here are not good. Um, I I would just point out that justices are are part of the social fabric of social Washington. Um, I was at the British Embassy for something this this summer, and Breyer was walking around. One of my favorite Washington moments ever was during an, an inauguration party for Obama in 2009, I saw Justice Scalia having a chat with uh, with Ludacris, the rapper, off, <laughs> off in a corner. I still don't know what they were talking about, but it was a great scene. Um, but this definitely has a different flavor. Um, you know, Stephen Miller was there. Matt Gates was there. Uh, yeah. Matt Schlapp, as you mentioned, who, you know, is all into the election denialism and cozying up with Victor Orban and all this. Um, and... and you would think that maybe some discretion is in order here for Kavanaugh because uh, if, if for no other reason than, than the, the blowback that Ginny Thomas has gotten for hanging out with this same crew, Justice Thomas's wife. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's probably also a good time to point out that while a lot of, well, all of the lower federal courts have ethics guidelines in place, uh, SCOTUS does not have similar kind of ethics guidelines in place for itself. And there is a, an, an increasing, I'm hearing increasing calls uh, for that to change. Right. And, and, and Leah, this does come, Kavanaugh's appearance does come on top of the testimony in front of Congress by uh, this former anti-abortion activist, uh, Reverend Rob Schenck, that uh, Justice Alito and his wife have been entertaining major conservative donors uh, who had issues in front of the Supreme Court. Yeah, it, this just seems like a constant story with different actors throughout the last, you know, couple years. Um, and, and this is part of the reason why the 
the country's trust in the Supreme Court as a non-political, non-partisan institution is deteriorating. And part of the reason why we're seeing things like leaks of Supreme Court decisions. Um, it's a, I think a, we're, we're getting to be on the verge of a crisis here. And uh, I think this is, you know, this is why we're having conversations about what to do with the Supreme Court. Should there be more justices? All of that, um, because there is a, 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 at least an issue with the perception of the court as a nonpartisan institution. Right. In fact, uh, public approval of the court and uh, public trust in the court is at an all-time low, according to every poll uh, that I checked uh, checked this week. All right, we talk about the former president. Uh, well, <laughs> he continues to make news, not always news that he likes, news this week that if the Republican primary were held today, uh, Donald Trump would be trailing Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, by 52 to 38. Um, whoa. Niall, I guess it's a good thing that Donald Trump announced early, right? Just to lock up the field. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that attempt to lock up the field very clearly has not worked uh, remotely. And in fact, you know, a lot of people even in Trump's circle are unimpressed with the way his campaign has got underway <clears throat> in such a sort of half-cocked fashion, hasn't really done any public events, hasn't, uh, you know, has made lots of obvious mistakes, not least his dinner with anti-Semites, followed by his suggestion that we should terminate or be able to terminate parts of the Constitution. Um, so, I mean, it has been quite bad. And of course, the the actual big picture that I think your question is getting at, Bill, is, you know, Trump did have a very bad midterms. DeSantis was one of the few Republicans who had a very good midterm mm -hmm. election, winning re-election by almost 20 points in Florida. And so that has clearly put quite a lot of wind in DeSantis' sails. And uh, Trump is rather um, becalmed looking and uh, falling behind in these polls that you mentioned. But Jeff, we've seen this movie before, right? I mean, in 2020 or 2016, I'm sorry, Donald Trump trailed every single one of the Republican candidates running against him. Yes. And that um, would happen. Right. <laughs> uh, exactly. I would only say that more alarming for Trump uh, is not just a head to head, but it's that his favorables are starting to drop among Republicans. Uh, remember, he used to be able to claim 90, 95 percent support among Republican voters. Yeah. Now, in some of these polls, he's checking in in the, the 60s and, and seemingly falling. Uh so that's that's what I've got my eye on as this goes forward. And who's to say we're recording this in the morning? Who's to say what Trump's, uh, quote unquote, all caps major announcement is going to be later right. today? Um, this maybe it's the maybe it's the thing that uh, that, that, <laughs> that restores his his presidential will, effort. Yeah, that will turn things around. Oh, yes. yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Well, uh, on, on Jeff's point, Leah, about maybe a fading support among Republicans and even increasing willingness among some Republicans to say critical things about Donald Trump. Here, of all people, is the Republican Senate leader, Mitch McConnell, this week speaking openly to reporters. We ended up having a candidate quality time. Anybody remember who mentioned that back in August? Look at Arizona, look at New Hampshire, and a challenging situation in Georgia as well. Our ability to control the primary outcome was quite limited in 22 because of the support of the former president proved to be very decisive in these primaries. 
Mm-hmm. He doesn't say the name Tr- Trump, Leah, but uh, we know who he's talking about. That's that's the closest uh, most people get to actually saying Trump. There's a lot of <laughs> there was candidate quality issues, or you know, we should all like not have dinner with Kanye West, but not actually saying who 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 did it. Um, no, I, I mean Mitch McConnell and Trump have been feuding for quite a while. Um, that's you know and. They've managed to kind of have a stalemate uh, with Mitch McConnell continuing to have support in his um, in his conference. But I think the the question is, I mean, Trump's support might be softening. It might be fading. Um, last poll I saw, I think he still had an approval rating of around 70 percent around Republicans, which is much lower than when he was president, but is still pretty high. Um I would caution when looking at the head-to-heads with Ron DeSantis that Ron DeSantis right now is still kind of a theoretical figure. Um, We know him from, you know, Mm -hmm. he's a really strong midterm performance. He uh, occasionally makes the news as kind of, you know, a a right-wing anti-woke star. Uh, But he hasn't faced a really tough race. um, And he hasn't faced a really tough debate. And I feel like we've seen this happen before throughout 2016, where it looked like one candidate was, you know, about to topple Trump for whatever reason, and then the debate happened and Trump just won again. So a lot of it depends on, first off, how DeSantis ends up doing as a candidate, should he run, um, how he actually performs on a debate stage, and also how many other candidates run. Because in the end, if Trump has a strong plurality, if he can you know, just keep 30% of the vote from Republicans over and over again um, in winner-take-all states, that might be enough to win the nomination, um, even if he is seeing softer support now than he did a few months ago. Indeed. Okay, now um, I have to wrap up and go to our favorite stories of the week before asking you about one non-political event of the week that got a lot, has been getting a lot of news, rightfully so, uh, so let me start with you, Jeff. How much of your uh, savings did you give to FTX and Sam Bankman-Fried? <laughs> um, <laughs> fortunately, uh, less than Kevin O'Leary did. Uh, the guy from Shark Tank, who was he was on Capitol Hill yesterday. He was a, not only gave his a lot of money to, to FTX as an investor, but also was a was a paid spokesperson, and that didn't work out so well. So he was uh, giving a post mortem. By the Senate Banking Committee yesterday, I unfortunately did not, or I fortunately, I should say, did not <laughs> uh, did not do the same. It, it is uh, astounding, uh, Niall, how many people were sucked into this. I, I mean, I'm gonna say I've always thought Bitcoin, the whole thing is bullshit, so I was never tempted, but uh, a lot of people were, Niall. Oh, absolutely. But I mean, Bill, I would have thought you as a good Californian would, would just oh, know, no. you know, gold rush. Gold <laughs> rush is always tempting for everybody. Everybody goes, runs off and starts sifting through the dirt to find their nuggets of gold. And it rarely works out for people. But in all seriousness, that 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 idea, that frenzy, I mean, we see that playing out again and again, whether it was in the excesses of the tech boom, now with uh, cryptocurrency, and yeah. you, know, you can go back through history, all the all the great market kind of frenzies yep. or rushes that have happened. Um, so, you know, the people are always uh, lured in by the promise of an easy fortune. The whole tulip craze, right? I remember exactly. reading about. Yeah, exactly. exactly. 
uh, Leah, um, so <laughs> here's this guy, he, and, and Jeff mentioned some of the celebrities I saw this morning. You know, one of them was Tom Brady, right? And there are some investors who are demanding that the celebrities pay them back, right? Because they were lured into it by the celebrity endorsements. I mean, I think the question is like, how does this happen? Like, and and also like, this is there, there have been variants of previous cryptocurrency companies that have gotten in trouble before. There's just not actual regulation in Congress of this particular kind of company. Right. Um, and I think that's what to watch now. Um, what, is Congress actually who's who's overseeing <laughs> who is overseeing crypto? They have to decide that, and then they can figure out what regulations to put in place. Well, paradoxically, let me just add uh, because we have an agriculture columnist in National Journal, uh, he reported this week that uh, oddly, the primary oversight jurisdiction for the the Commodities Future Trading Corporation falls to the ag committees given how uh, wow given how the yeah. futures markets evolved it was all based on agricultural futures 100 years ago uh, so before they get to the farm bill this year the <laughs> ag the ag committees may actually be writing regulatory laws surrounding crypto Wow, you would yeah. never, you would never guess that, right? You would never think, right? All right, what congressional committee is going to have jurisdiction over that? The Ag Committee, really? Right, because they yeah. are technically a, a a a futures commodity rather than a traditional security that would be under the aegis of the SEC and therefore, let's say, the Senate Banking Committee. Oh my God! So Tom Vilsack, the Secretary of Agriculture, may be the one <laughs> who gets the blame. God, yep, this is. This is going to be fun to watch. Oh, boy. In fact. All right, guys. Thank you so much. A great wrap-up of this uh, this uh, last week here in December, last roundtable of the year. Leah Skaranam from uh, Grid News, Niall Standish from The Hill, and Jeff Dufer from National Journal. And uh, you, we know there was one story this week that you may have been covering or not covering that really stopped you in your tracks. Your favorite story of the week. Niall, what caught your attention? So a uh, completely off the wall story, nothing to do with anything we'd uh, remotely uh, cover. <laughs> but just as a as a curiosity, the um, I believe most expensive pair of jeans in the history of the world oh, sold yes. for one hundred and fourteen thousand dollars. And the reason they fetched that price was that they date back to the the gold rush era, actually, which we were just talking about. These jeans were, and I'm quoting from the AP here. Pulled from a sunken trunk at an 1857 shipwreck off the coast of North Carolina. And the twist in the tale is that these jeans are so old that it calls into question the idea that uh, Levi Strauss is the kind of uh, father of jeans because apparently they predate the first pair of Levi Strauss jeans by 16 years, no less. That was a fascinating article, that, right? That ship has been underwater all that time and right. with this one trunk. These goods that were in that trunk, because there was no oxygen in there, I guess, they remain mm. basically intact. Yeah, yeah, incredible story. Incredible story. Wow. Although you could probably pay that much for a pair of jeans on uh, <laughs> Madison Avenue today. I don't probably. know. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't know. <laughs> Jeff, what was your favorite story? Well, also off the wall, uh, Dave McKenna, you may remember, is the Washington City paper writer that Dan Snyder sued for defamation. Oh, right. Well, uh, he's uh, McKenna's got a piece in Defector this week about, of all things, duckpin bowling. 
Uh, duck pin bowling is a regional thing. It's kind of a cross between candle pin and regular bowling. One of those regions was in Northwest Connecticut where I grew up. And back there, there's only one alley that I, that I know of remaining. Uh, and even that one keeps limited hours. It's also big in parts of Ohio and in Baltimore, which is where McKenna reports from. Uh, because a real estate developer shut down the last duck pin lane in the city. Uh, there used to be several, and this is where a bit of a backstory comes in, which is in the back in the 90s, Goldman Sachs decided that there was money in bowling, and they led a, le a leverage buyout of AMF Bowling, the world's largest bowling company. And part of their bet was all about regular bowling with the big balls and big pins. Um, mm. So they effectively put all the duck pin lanes or most of the duck pin lanes out of business because they wanted everybody to focus on the, on the, the big ball bowling. Um, and they admitted at the time that their money, their, their mission was to make money for investors, not to sustain a regional pastime. And indeed that is, they did not make money. Uh, their, their bet did not pay off, uh, but they also managed to kill this regional pastime in the process. So um, you're lamenting the demise of duck pin bowling? Uh, yeah, I used to. I used to bo duck pin bowl <laughs> as a kid. It, it was it was great. I would suggest you're part of a very small minority in mm -hmm. this country, uh, Jeff. That's right. I am. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and Leah, what caught your attention particularly? Uh, we're going to do some some news you can use here. All right. Uh, State of the union movement. Um, article that uh, happens to be from grid.news. Um, but a couple of my colleagues looked into uh, Biden as this self-declared pro-union president. Um, and the question is, in this new era, can he be a pro-union president? What does it mean to be pro-union? And in the end, are unions right now thriving or shrinking? Um, obviously some conflicting evidence, uh, Biden getting involved in the railroad um, union uh, issue was, you know, not <laughs> seems like it was uh, going to hurt the movement. But we've also seen growth from Amazon and Starbucks unionizing. Um, so a really interesting kind of deep dive um, that I think is uh, really helpful in setting some of the context of the current news. Yes, indeed. Uh, Joe Biden, who is very, very much pro-union, but he did admit that he had to kind of break uh, break his, his stride there, right, when he went with the uh, uh, to settle the railroad strike and signing that legislation. I'm surprised nobody mentioned the World Cup, <laughs> uh, but uh, Sunday will be a great game, certainly between Argentina and France. France trying to uh, hang on to the world uh, championship. But I got to say, my favorite story is a story I will admit up front that I know absolutely nothing about. I'm completely buffaloed by it, but I think it has to be my favorite story because I think it's probably the most important story of the week. And that's the whole announcement about this fusion breakthrough announced by um, Jennifer Granholm, the secretary of energy. To me, it's just it's so mind-boggling. There were a hundred and the facts: a hundred and ninety-two lasers uh, in this energy department building out in the Colorado. I think uh, no, I believe it's Colorado. Whatever, wherever the building's the size of a football stadium, and they shot these one hundred and ninety-two lasers into a pellet which was one half the size of a BB. And they produced more energy than they put in, which scientists say is the equivalent of creating a new star 
Uh, it's the first time that we've ever created more energy than we use to create that energy, which they say promises a whole new source of a limitless energy for the planet. It may take years and years to get there, but I think, my friends, we may have seen real scientific history made this week, even though, again, I don't understand the first thing about it, but I think it's important. So I wanted to make it uh, my favorite story of the week. And with that, another great big thank you to uh, Leah Escaranam from Grid News, Niall Stanage from The Hill and News Nation AM, and Jeff Dufer from National Journal. Happy holidays, guys. Thank you so, so much. Uh, and that's it for today. That's our last roundtable for the week. For the next two roundtables, we're going to be looking back at uh, – two, four, actually, of the best political books of the year uh, about Donald Trump and about the Republican Party, books by uh, David Korn and Dana Milbank, and of course by Maggie Haberman and then Peter Baker and Susan Klasser. That's the next two roundtables. Next Tuesday, December 20, we'll be back with our regular podcast and a very important interview with Mitch Landrew. Mitch Landrew, the former mayor of New Orleans, who is now in charge at the White House of the infrastructure bill signed by uh, President Biden in November 19, uh, 2021. Yes, it's Mitch Landrieu's job to spend $1.2 trillion, and we'll find out how he's going to do it. Uh, that's next Tuesday. Come back and see us then on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.